0: Uh, Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've trusted us with your word. Uh, We thank you that you revealed yourself to us through your word. And so we ask that you would speak to us today by your Holy Spirit words that inspire deeper levels of devotion to your son, the Lord Jesus, and to his mission on earth. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got a PowerPoint presentation here, which I hope will help. So uh, see if we can get this to work. There we go. I'm a bit of a royalist. I'm not going to stake my life on it, but I am. Uh, And so one of the things that I I don't think Christmas is complete unless I've watched the Queen's Christmas message. Um, But the Christmas message from the, the reigning monarch has been a tradition that's been around a fair while. And probably the most famous of them was the Queen's father, King George VI, and his Christmas message in 1939. So that was right at the beginning of the Second World War. And uh, Hitler had declared war on England, and the English people were just across the channel from from a power that wanted to invade. And so that was a difficult time. And so King George VI, in his Christmas message, wanted to lift the spirits of the people of England uh, facing an uncertain future. And in his speech, he quoted from a poem by Minnie Louise Haskins, which has since become famous mainly because it was used in the king's uh, speech that night. And it's called God Knows. And this is just the preamble to the poem. But listen to these words. Perhaps you've heard them before. But the king included in his speech, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth and finding the hand of God, trod gladly into the night and he led me toward the hills and the breaking of day in the lone east. Give me a light that I may trade safely into the unknown. Now if you think about it, it doesn't, we don't need a war to remind us that the future is unknown, do we? You don't know what's going to happen today. You don't know how your life might change. It can change in an instant. Forces completely out of our control. Do I need to remind you that the world is a dark place? There's so much evidence of it, but we don't need a war in Europe to remind us of that. These words were read at a time when Europe had been plunged again into darkness and where the British people needed inspiration because they were facing the terror of a completely uncertain future. But that's the world that we live in all the time. I, uh, as you know, I barrack for the Melbourne Footy Club and I was given a, a book about Max Gorn, the, uh, the captain of the, uh, the, the premiership winning team. And I haven't read it all, but I've just had a little bit of a dabble into bits of it And Max Gorn tells a fascinating story. One day they were training and one of the younger members of the team wasn't doing what he needed to do. He was just standing there looking off into space. And so Max comes over and says, what are you doing? And so the young fellow looked at him and said, what are we doing here? Now to Max Gorn it's pretty obvious, we're in pre-season training, we're getting ready to try to win a premiership. He says, what are we doing here? And Max says, what do you mean? He says, I mean, what are we doing here? The planet's cooked. Shouldn't we be out looking for a new one? (laughs) So in other words, let's shelve pre-season training. We need to go and find a planet that will be able to be inhabited when this one is burned by climate change. That's the world that a lot of people think we're coming into. I read in an article last year, Sydney's leading vasectomy surgeon has noticed a real upsurge in young men, unmarried young men, coming and being sterilised. And he says the reason is because they don't want to bring children into such a dangerous world. We're living in a hopeless world, a hopeless world. We're living in a world of darkness. And we need a light that we may tread safely into the unknown. I want to suggest that we live in a world of spiritual blindness... A world in which God's Word, the light of God's Word, if you're listening as Steve read Psalm 36, in your light we see light, is what Psalm 36 says. We need God's light in our dark world. But the reading that we've had today, and I'd like to think about this, in this world of darkness, to take the light of God's Word, to take the light of the Gospel of Jesus, will sometimes be believed... And sometimes be opposed. And we need to sober ourselves up and realise that those two reactions will happen. That doesn't mean we're going to have our confidence dented, because it will be believed. We've believed it. But we need to get real. God's word will be opposed, and we see that. And so today we're reaching a turning point in our journey through the book of Acts. Barnabas and Saul, we see, are set apart for the work. Uh, and they're going to be bringing light to a dark world. I've said it before, I'm going to keep saying it. You won't understand the book of Acts unless you understand Luke's essay plan. Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, says Jesus, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now I used to teach English, I used to teach essay writing, I used to say to the kids, you need to structure your essay. You need to make it flow logically from one point to the next. Luke has structured his book around these words of Jesus. So the book starts in Jerusalem and it finishes at the ends of the earth. And we see the progress of the gospel at various points throughout. Now, previously in in recent talks, we've seen that James, uh, James, the brother of John, one of Jesus' disciples in chapter 12, he was executed. And Herod, the ruler at that time, Uh, discovered that that pleased the Jews it was tactically and politically a good move for Herod to have executed James so he arrests Peter and we saw in the the talk that I sent down on video last week that James was executed but Peter was released and so that gives us something to think about sometimes God's people will die not always sometimes they'll be released but not always But opponents of the gospel are attempting to hinder the spread of the good news in Jerusalem. Well at the end of chapter 12, just before the words Vicky read to us, we find King Herod in Tyre and Sidon making a speech and he receives the worship of the crowd and so he's struck dead. That's the second of three what we call judgment miracles where God judges someone instantly. The first of them was in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit. Peter speaks to them and they drop dead. Herod receives praise that should only go to God and we're told he struck dead and died. But again, there are so many rulers that that hasn't happened to. I could think of a few right now who are glad to be worshipped and yet God doesn't punish them in that way. So just because God can doesn't mean he always does. So Herod's struck and he dies, but, verse 24 of chapter 12, but, very important word, but the word of God increased. So you can have a powerful man who has the power of life and death doing his worst to stop the gospel, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned. Now this is this transition we were going from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. And so we've been introduced to Barnabas and Saul already in the book because Luke is a very careful writer who structures the way he presents the message. Back in chapter 11, we've read that Barnabas and Saul were chosen to take a gift, a monetary gift, to the struggling Christians in Jerusalem. So they're back now. So chapter 12 is bracketed by Antioch and Antioch. So the centre of our attention has now shifted from Jerusalem to Antioch, where the gospel has gone out. And Nathan preached about how the people in Antioch were the first people in history to be called Christians. So Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, Mark's an important man, uh, a famous person in in Christian history, a man with a very checkered career. As we're going to see, he he gets a number of references in the book of Acts, but he turns up in other places in the New Testament. And so if we read Colossians chapter 4, we'll read that Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. But he was a man who had very high highs and very low lows. We'll talk about those at another time. We believe that Mark, sometimes called John, was the author of the the gospel that bears his name the gospel of mark was written by this traveling companion of barnabas and saul anyway the first 12 chapters of the book of acts are basically centered in jerusalem and the most dominant character is peter but as we move to the second half of the book which we're into now we're seeing the focus shifting from the jewish churches to the gentile churches and the dominant character is now saul or as he's about to become known paul So this is the division of the two books, the books in two halves, two geographical locations, two dominant players. And now the attention shifts to the man that we've come to know as Paul. And so in verses one to three of chapter 13, we see that Paul and and Barnabas are set apart by the Holy Spirit. So Barnabas and Saul have been identified among a listing there of the prophets and teachers that operate in the church in Antioch. Um, there's no hard and fast distinction. The Bible doesn't have a, a, a clear definition of what a prophet and what a teacher is and where their job, distinction, their, their job description limits. Uh, some, some people clearly did both and we'll see that Paul operates not only as a teacher but also as a prophet in this very passage. If you look across the whole book of Acts, the evidence for what prophets did, uh, they proclaimed the message. Uh, they predicted sometimes so Agabus we've already seen him and later on he turns up again and he makes predictions which aren't always entirely true so Paul Agabus makes a prediction about Paul and Paul chooses not to listen he goes right on ahead um, so prophets in the new testament operate at a different level from the prophets of the old testament Isaiah Jeremiah and those fellows, because in the new testament we're supposed to test the word of prophets and you never tested Isaiah's word or Jeremiah's word because it was straight from God. And so these prophets operated at a different level of inspiration. They were useful, but mainly what they did was to explain the current application of truth that had already been revealed. So David Williams, an Australian scholar, in his book on Acts, he says prophets weren't, in a New Testament sense, were not sources of new truth. In other words, their word could always be tested against the word of God as, as it's written. Um, teachers are responsible for the careful transmission of the written word. Teaching the deposit, that's what we charged Nathan with before, guard the good deposit that's been trusted to you. If you've been given a good deposit of anything, you need to look after it, right? Um, If you've got lots of money, look after it. Don't squander it. A good deposit of Bible truth needs to be handled carefully by those people who are meant to pass it on. And that's what teachers do. They pass it on, the the message that's been left to them by the apostles. Now, in this passage here, the teaching is given three different terms. So in verses 4 and 7, it's called the word of God. In verse 8, it's called the faith. So we want people to believe the faith. And it's also called the teaching of the Lord Jesus. So what do prophets prophesy about? They prophesy about the work of Jesus. What do teachers teach about? They teach about the things that Jesus taught and they teach about the way that Jesus lived. But they teach Jesus, the word of God, the faith and the teaching of the Lord Jesus. That's the content of prophecy and of the teaching. Now it's a very interesting list, that list of uh, the five prophet teachers. The first named is Barnabas. He's a Jew. We've already met him. His name means son of encouragement. That little word bar means son of. We're going to see it again later on. But Barnabas means son of encouragement. He was a person who was gifted at encouraging other people. Now he he was a Jew, actually a Levite from the island of Cyprus. But number two is Simon, otherwise known as Niger. Now we're not told but we could probably have, has it a reasonably good guess. Niger means in Latin, it means black or dark. So there's a fair chance that Simon was an African. We're not told, but there's a fair chance. And it may be that this Simon, it could be that he's Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus cross in Jerusalem on that first Good Friday. Maybe, we're not told, it may be, but it's not that it's it's just an interesting thing but there's a fair chance that Simon came from from Africa because he's known as Simon the dark but then Lucius we're told does come from Cyrene so he's definitely an African and then there's Manaan and Manaan we grew up with Herod so he grew up in the royal household that makes him a somebody isn't it interesting how the courses of two lives can depart this is the Herod, the Herod that's named here is the Herod that was ruling when Jesus was born and he was a gifted murderer. He beheaded John the Baptist. But Menaean becomes a prophet and teacher. Isn't it interesting, the, the courses of life, that? who knows how that happened? But then there's Saul who came from Tarsus, again a Jew. Can you see what's happening here? Remember back when there was the controversy when Peter went and preached to the Gentile Cornelius? And he comes and talks to the people back in Jerusalem and they said, "You ate with a Gentile?" And now here in the Church of Antioch we get a vision of how the Christian community ought to be. Jews and Gentiles from different places, different ethnicities, coming together and serving the Lord Jesus together. That's a vision for how the world should be. Is there any other way of achieving that except in the Gospel of Christ? Now, we live in a world where they're telling us about we need to be diverse and inclusive and, and, and tolerant and all these sorts of things. Tell me another way. It sounds good, but how do we do it? The only way I can think of is through the gospel because the things that are stopping diversity inclusion, and inclusion, they, they come from the heart. You can't command it. You can't legislate for it. What these things require is heart change, People need to be transformed by the saving grace of Jesus. Then we'll start to see diversity, equality and inclusion. And we see it, just a glimpse of it, in the church in Antioch. So Barnabas and Saul, set apart by the Spirit, uh, while these believers were fasting and praying, Christians are not commanded to fast, but there's nothing against it. Jesus talked about it as though his people would do it he says when you fast he says when you fast just don't make a big fuss of it don't go around with a gloomy face so that when you go everywhere you know and somebody offers you a biscuit say I can't I'm fasting (laughs) that just means you're drawing attention to yourself fasting is a spiritual discipline I think I think the way it works is this you remember you're hungry and so you think now's a good time to pray it concentrates your mind on the fact that you're wanting to pray. And so the, the choice of abstaining from food or from other things is a choice that should remind you to pray. And I think that's the purpose of, of the benefit of Christian fasting. But we see this, the Trinity in action, God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit in all of this. The Spirit is the one who calls these fasting, praying people to set apart uh, Paul, Saul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul actually, but um, in chapter nine, when, when Saul was first converted to Christ, uh, Jesus says to Ananias, when, when Saul goes and gets some marching orders in Damascus, Jesus says to Ananias, he's a chosen of instrument of mine. So Jesus has already set him apart to carry his name to, to Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Jesus has set him apart in chapter nine, now the Spirit, on behalf of Jesus, because the spirit always works to glorify Jesus, <laughs> the spirit on the behalf of Jesus speaks to these assembled believers and says, set apart from me, Saul. But when Paul, the apostle, when he writes about this experience to the Romans, he says that he has been he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart, there's that word, for the gospel of God. Father, Son and Holy Spirit cooperate to send Barnabas and Saul out for the mission of taking the good news of Jesus to people that have still not heard it. And so there's a pattern here in these first three verses, the commissioning pattern that we've tried to put into practice today with Nathan and Marika. Uh, When people are identified as being gifted for a particular ministry, then the church in which that identification happens and to which they belong needs to support and train them And then we publicly affirm them by commissioning. We're saying to everybody, we're not going to give them a different uniform. Nathan will not suddenly turn up with a funny collar on. Marika won't wear a big hat. But we've publicly identified them as being set apart by this church for particular duties. And and having identified them, we're going to pray and, and support them in making sure that those duties are carried out well. Verses 4 to 5 show that Barnabas and Saul are sent by the Spirit with the word for the world. So being sent by the Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. So that was the port city near Antioch. And they sailed from there to Salamis, which is on Cyprus. And when they were in Salamis, they went straight to the synagogue. It was always the practice of the earliest messengers of Jesus to start, where people already knew something about The God of Israel. And so they went to the synagogue first of all. Synagogues were scattered right around that first century world. Um, it was a, an outgrowth of, of history that the Jewish people had been scattered, and so wherever they went, they built synagogues. And that was the place that, uh, that the earliest Christian missionaries first went to. It was in God's providence that the Jews had been scattered, and so when the missionaries went out, they started with the synagogue congregations and they told them that their, the Jewish Messiah had come and so then we get to this the story of the magician simon bar jesus sometimes known as elemis and the roman proconsul sergius paulus so they'd gone through the whole island and they came to paphos and they came across a jewish false prophet called bar jesus he was with the proconsul sergius paulus now this bar jesus and bar means son of So that means son of Jesus. Jesus is the Greek way of saying the Jewish name Joshua. Joshua means Yahweh is our salvation. So he's got a Jewish name, but he's not living as a good Jew. He's with the Roman proconsul who's ruling the territory of of Cyprus. Uh, Sergius Paulus is his name. But a Jewish magician should have been unknown. You shouldn't be able to have those two words in the same sentence. Any Jew who knew their scriptures would know that God had forbidden magic practices. So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. They shall not be found among you. And there's a whole list of things, including anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Why would charming and sorcery and occult practices of trying to divine the future be an abomination to the Lord? Because that means you've got no faith. We live in a world where we have to confront the day's darkness with trusting God. We don't try to work out the future by Curious processes. That's what Simon Bar-Jesus was into. He was into um, uh, trying to work out the future. He was a sorcerer. So he worked for Sergius Paulus, who was the Roman proconsul. We're told there he was intelligent. Of course he was. He listened to Paul. So written after the event, he demonstrates his intelligence by rejecting the counsel of his astrologer and he listens instead to these travelling minutes missionaries as they'd gone through the island he would they would have come to his attention and so he he wants to hear from them and so he summons Barnabas and Saul to hear the word but spiritual opposition the forces of darkness come to play he wants to hear what it is that Saul and Barnabas have been talking about but Bar-Jesus tries to deter him so Bar-Jesus otherwise known as Elemas opposes them and he he seeks to turn sergius paulus away from the faith the, the the body of teaching that identifies jesus as being god's true king the messiah the savior of the world now this is an interesting thing because sometimes opposition to the gospel comes from people that should know better and that may even on the surface appear to be members of god's people have you ever noticed that sometimes opposition comes i was talking to a young man a friend i made when i was at ridley college a few years ago he was a very bright fellow and an outstanding young preacher and uh, i I caught up with him a couple of years after we'd left college i said how's it all going and he's left the church he's still he's still a christian but he said i didn't know christians could be so hard to work with and he felt from the moment he stepped into this christian role he was opposed by people that should have been nurturing his gift and encouraging it. Maybe they felt threatened by it, I don't know. But he'd stopped because he couldn't handle it anymore. I heard an experienced Christian once say that in his first church, a member of the board, the leaders of the church came up and said, no matter how long it takes, we will destroy you. That's a good start to a Christian ministry career. Nathan, it won't happen in MAFRA. It won't, will it? Because we're going to commit ourselves to supporting the ministry of the gospel. And any young, able man who's, who's committed himself to it, we want to be behind them, not in the way of them. But sometimes opposition comes from people who look as though they ought to know better. Charles is a very great Anglican um, pastor from the 18th century. Um, he, ca- he, he was powerfully converted to Christ at Cambridge University and started at the age of 23 to minister at Holy Trinity in Cambridge. And he was an evangelical, so he believed in preaching the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people of the church who used to pay for their pews and used to have locks on the gates, so that's what a a gated church looks like, and you pay for your family pew, and the people who owned the family pews so objected to his preaching the evangelical gospel that they locked their pews and refused to attend, which meant no one else could get a seat in church if they did want to hear it. And so Charles Simeon, age 23, says, right, we'll put benches in the aisles. So the church wardens threw the benches out into the street. They did everything they could to stop him preaching about Jesus in church. So he went and preached in barns and anywhere he could get a listing. But he stayed. And, you know, he served the Lord Jesus in that church for 54 years. And he didn't actually have any success for the first 10 of them. Now, that's perseverance. But eventually, he trained... It's believed that by the end of his career, one-third of the Anglicans in England had been the products of his training of them and his he's inspiring example of preaching the gospel. So the word of God will be opposed. That's a message we need to remember and it can be opposed from people who look as though they belong to, the, to, to God's people. And in verse 9, we're told that Saul... Is also called Paul. So Saul's his Jewish name. Paul is his Roman name. He was a citizen of two worlds. But from this point on, he's only ever called Paul, except when he re- recollects his pre-conversion days. Um, but he acts now as a spirit-filled prophet, and so he denounces this bar Jesus. He calls him a son of the devil. Now, his name means son of Jesus. Paul says, no, you're actually a son of the devil. Uh, there's something interesting going on there. Sometimes, sometimes Christian leaders need to use strong words. Uh, we read before, Nathan's duty, my duty, uh, any minister of the word will sometimes need to correct, to rebuke and encourage. But rebuke is a part of it. And so, Paul, he realises what's at stake. This is a battle of dark and light. This is a, this is a battle in the spiritual places. Darrell Bock calls it a battle of the prophets. Uh, Paul realises that stern measures need to be taken and so he denounces him in very strong terms because the stakes are eternal. Sergius Paulus, bar Jesus wants to get him away from the faith. Paul says, be quiet, you son of the devil, because he wants to see this man come to the light of the gospel of Christ. And so he pronounces on bar Jesus and in doing so shows that he's a true prophet because his word comes to pass um and and bar Jesus is blinded uh this is the third judgment miracle so this opponent of the light of Christ is now blinded but only for a limited time and that reminds us of Saul being blinded now Saul's being blinded led to him being converted we're not told what happened to bar Jesus or Alamas. but. Um, It's clear at this point that even though he's not physically blind until Paul says what he says, he's spiritually blind and he wants to stop anyone else coming to the light of the gospel. We don't know if Elemis repented and believed, but as Darrell Bock says, every reader of the book of Acts knows what he should have done. But Sergius Paulus, we're told, believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It wasn't just the miracle that converted Sergius Paulus. He was converted by the word. Miracles can impress people, but it's the word that convicts people. And if you put too high a premium on miracles, you're actually going to a place that the Bible doesn't want you to go, because we walk by faith, not by sight. And there's been plenty of people who have been impressed with miracles that don't actually end up being transformed. It's the word that does the work. Sergius Paulus was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so Paul's apostleship is authenticated. The first part of the book, main player is Peter. second part of the book, the, uh, the main player is Paul. Peter spoke and Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead paul speaks and Elamas is blinded two judgment miracles one by a member of the group that followed jesus round, one by this new apostle who wasn't physically present with jesus and luke wants everybody to realize that paul is as much an apostle as peter had been and so the focus shifts to him for the second part of the book and so begins the career of the apostle to the gentiles Uh, what he's been doing is calling people out of spiritual blindness Paul himself had been in the dark and he wants his mission is calling people out of spiritual blindness Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus he said this at one time you and we can apply this to ourselves because we need to understand this the call of the gospel is to come out of spiritual blindness into the light of gospel truth in Jesus at one time you were darkness But now you are light in the Lord. What do we do next? Well, we walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Elemas needed to be led by the hand. But we are people having been enlightened by the gospel of Christ want to walk in that light. And so we live in a dark world, but we walk in the light of Christ. We walk as Jesus would have us. So to go back to where we began, we live in a world of spiritual blindness but we've seen today that it's a a world in which the, the word of Christ will be believed and it will be opposed. But it will always increase and multiply because it's powered by God's spirit for the glory of the Lord Jesus. So let's not let opposition deter us. Holy Trinity Cambridge is still a thriving evangelical church today. Go on the website and look at all that they're contributing to the to the life of the city of Cambridge. Uh, the gospel is still being preached very faithfully there. And so we need to pray that Mafra Community Church will remain a light for Jesus until he returns. And don't let it be deterred by opposition. We just need to get real and say that's going to happen. But at the same time, The gospel will be believed because it's the word of God. It's active and it will triumph in the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for these lessons that we can learn from your word. We thank you for servants like Barnabas and Saul who were faithful to the prompting of your Holy Spirit. Uh, We pray that you would help us to be faithful to the prompting of the Holy Spirit too. We thank you for the example of someone like Sergius Paulus who believed the word and was convicted and converted. We pray that you would help us to walk in the light of your word, having been transformed by it, uh, and to live out the implications of what it means to trust Jesus each day. So please help us to be agents of Jesus' light in our community and in the midst of this dark world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.